I never really cried much before. I cry freely now, uh, you know, and I'm not ashamed of it. I, you know, it's, it's therapeutic for me. Uh, I still love to talk about Jackson. I'm here today. I want to talk about Jackson. I love talking about him and, you know, what a regular kid he was. Um, but it's been a journey. Uh, and I, I'm realizing more and more I'm still in it. I'll never be over it. I think we, anybody that's ever lost a child would, would agree with that. You're never over it. Um, the way I explain it to people is there's a hole. There's a hole in, in my soul. And all I've done is build up some muscle around that hole. So it just doesn't quite hurt as much. And so I build up some strength. I lean on people when I need to lean on people. Um, but there's still days when I'm driving to work and a sad song comes on and I, I just cry. That was Chris Joseph, a 500-game NHLer and a former teammate of mine with the Mannheim Hadler in Germany for three seasons. And Chris is also the father of Jackson Joseph. And Jackson was one of the players on the Humboldt Broncos bus traveling north for a playoff game on April 6, 2018, who, who perished. And you are listening to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Padolin. Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolin, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Padolin, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for 1,000. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there and welcome back or welcome to the Up My Hockey Podcast with Jason Padolin. I am Jason Padolin, your host, and today we are speaking with Chris Joseph. Uh, Chris was a teammate of mine in Mannheim with the Adler. That was the first time I'd ever met Chris, and uh, we ended up playing together for three years over there. Chris had come off 500 games in the NHL, and he was uh, a highly touted player coming into the NHL. He was the fifth overall draft pick in 1987 to the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh, and we talk about it in the episode, but that was 10 spots higher than Hall of Famer Joe Sackick. So at the time, uh, you know, Joe was a, was a big player uh, in the junior ranks. And because of that status, he ended up playing on two world junior teams, uh, which we also cover. Uh, the, the first one was in the Czech Republic when uh, the lights got turned out in the brawl against Russia. So we covered that. Uh, I had no idea he was a part of that game. So that was really shocking to me during this interview to know that he was a part of that game. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and he went on. He got traded young. He got traded to Edmonton. He ended up playing with both Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux. I got to play with Mario twice. Uh, on two different occasions, um, and uh, and got to play with Wayne as a 19-year-old. Uh, what a not many people have the uh, have the luxury of saying they were in dressing rooms with both of those two icons. Uh, but we caught talk about that. But more importantly, and maybe most importantly, is uh, we talk about Chris Joseph, the father, and Chris Joseph, the father of the just you know not just um, recently passed Jackson Joseph. Jackson was on that bus crash, uh, the Humboldt Broncos bus crash three years ago. And we had this interview the day after the anniversary of the crash on Green Shirt Day. 
and um, Chris or Joe, as as I call him, he's he was an unbelievable teammate, and he was somebody that I kept in contact with after. Uh, I retired and I'd seen him since we played and that's not the case with with everyone I played with you know you play with a lot of players and and some some guys you keep in contact with and um, and some guys you don't and Chris was somebody that I did um, and yeah when when I heard of that crash and when I found out that Jackson was on that bus uh, Jackson the same Jackson that was running around the dressing room in Mannheim and I got to watch him grow up over three years it uh it was obviously hard. I mean, it was it was hard for for me. It was hard for the hockey world, and obviously, it was incredibly hard for anyone that was a part of that humble Broncos team and and had a f- first person connection to that to that tragedy. And and Chris, uh, you know, w- w- was was directly connected uh, with with his oldest son being on that bus and unfortunately not making it. So we spoke about the crash and. Uh, you know, Joe did uh, amazing job of of you know his poise and um, his authenticity and and his transparency with where he's at and and you know his willingness to speak about where he's at and where the family's at and 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 his willingness to talk about Jackson and what type of a player and what type of a person he was and um, he made it really easy for me. Um, in a with really tough questions i mean i wanted to give chris the space to uh to go where he wanted with that going into this interview is one of the most nervous that i've been because i i knew how many times i've cried over that scenario and having chris in front of me and talking to him about something that is uh you know so so you know here i go again but you know just so emotional uh I didn't know where it was going to go, but uh, and I knew too going in that Chris said that this year this anniversary was an incredibly hard one, and obviously it's it's never going to change. But uh, uh, completely, that is, you know, Joe, Joe speaks in the interview about you know he's never going to be the same Chris Joseph again, and and yeah. So long story short, we 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 talk about we talk about the bus crash, we talk about Caleb, one of the survivors of the of the crash in the book, and uh, that he just wrote called Crossroads, and. Um, and anyways, Joe was a Joe was an all star as as always. You know, he 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 showed he showed who he is and why he was uh, such a valuable teammate to so many to so many teams that he played on. Um, he he handled a really difficult situation, you know, with class and with pride and with uh, and with respect for his family and for his son. And um, he was always somebody I looked up to. You know, Chris. Uh, well, and still do. You know, but even as I was playing in in Mannheim, and he had this great wife and this awesome family, and and uh, Chris's disposition, uh, and you know, what what pride he took in being a father and how he represented himself with with his family was something that I always looked up to. And he was a bit of a mentor for me in that way. With without him probably even knowing it. And uh, and again, like I said in this interview and and in interviews past that I've seen him on, he. He uh, he did a great job uh, with tough with tough subject matter. So Chris, if you're listening to this, thank you uh, for being so awesome. Uh, thank you for being so willing to chat about such tough subjects and uh, and also sharing your career and your story and uh, and what hockey means to you. And uh, you know, I think a lot of us can relate to the togetherness and the interconnectedness of this great sport. And um, and even though 
this tragedy, uh, this, this, yeah, there's no other word for it. This tragedy was something that was so awful, uh, that there is some good that's coming from it. You know, the, the book from Caleb is, is inspiring a lot of people. Green shirt day is, is, is saving lives with the organ donation. And, um, you know, there is, there is some beams of hope and, and, uh, you know, an inspiration that are coming from, from that, from that crash. And I know personally, I'll always remember that day and, uh, and my sticks will be out and my thoughts will be with those players and those families. And, uh, and yeah, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with my ex-teammate and good friend, Mr. Chris Joseph. All right, partner. I think we're we're rocking here. Um, live on Facebook in the parent group. And uh, I think I'm on my normal channel as well for episode 59 here of the Up My Hockey podcast with an awesome friendly face. Um, a guy that was my teammate for three years for the Adler Mannheim over in Germany. And that's Mr. Chris Joseph. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks, Jason. How are you? Man, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I know we just had a chance to briefly catch up here a um, couple minutes, couple minutes before we went live. Uh, always nice to see you. Um, one of my fondest memories is actually after we were playing is when I got to go back and visit you in the at the old fire hall there, and I brought my brought my youngest or my oldest now, and he got him behind the wheel. And anyways, those super fun fun memories for me that day, and um, you know, kind of encapsulates for me what I really remembered. He was a teammate in, in Germany too. Um, are you doing, what are you doing? Are you still doing firefighting? Are you, is that, is that what your job is? Yeah, I just started my 15th year with the Edmonton Fire Department and uh, it's good. I, for a hockey player, it's a really good transition. It's very similar. Um, so I've really enjoyed that. And of course with COVID and everything lately, you know, everything's been locked down. And so I still have to go to work because we can't do that remotely. And mm -hmm. So it's actually given me a lot of sanity, which has been awesome. And of course, I love my crew. It's you know their teammates, right? Yeah, uh, I've enjoyed that. And other than that, just been kind of trying to get by. Man, I think we all just walk the dogs every day and do that kind of fun stuff. Yeah, I hear you. Um, quick, just a quick sort of transitional question there with the with the firefighting. What is it about that? Um, that you think is conducive for a hockey player and why it's such a great fitting job uh, to, to be a firefighter and to do it well? Well, the biggest thing is you know how to be a team player. Um, we, so naturally when we all finished playing hockey, we were really good at one thing. We were good at hockey. And I personally didn't have a lot of life skills in anything else. But what I did find is that you're, you know, you're, you're a good student, you're a hard worker, you can learn anything. So I learned how to, you know, fight fires. I learned how to do medical aid stuff and you can learn that stuff. But the biggest thing that we had as intangible was that we knew how to be a team player. We knew when it was, you know, go time and to work and, and be serious and, and dig. And then we knew when it was time to goof off and be a fun teammate. And, and that part is the same in the fire hall. Like we get a lot of downtime too. Uh, but when it's go time, you know, you put your game face on and you go. Um, the other aspect is we like to s stay fit. 
right? And it was the same when we played hockey. We are yeah. working out and staying active, and so we have to do that as well. So it's a good mesh. Um, you know, other the other the, I do tease the firefighters. They're like, is it? It must be exactly the same as hockey. And I say, well, a lot of similarities, but uh, I got. I got some nice job security with the Edmonton Fire Department. I had zero job security <laughs> in hockey. As you know, you know, you're, there's a few guys every day trying to take your job, but um, yeah. it's a wonderful, wonderful transition for any kind of a hockey player or any athlete, really. Yeah, hockey's a great sport for that, for sure. Um, the camaraderie, you know, in the locker room, what you're, what you're willing to do for each other and what you have to do for each other, really, in your job. You I mean, you have to depend on each other and be trustworthy or else it sure can go wrong in a hurry, I'm sure. So a um, lot of parallels. Um, today is Green Shirt Day, um, which is, you know, symbolic of, uh, which came into existence because of the tragedy of 2018, which was yesterday. Uh, might as well just kind of, jump into that i mean what is green shirt day to you is is that is that a piece of of your process now when this anniversary comes or what does that mean to you and your family it is and i'm not wearing my green shirt but i am wearing my my humble shirt which has got some green on it um but in the beginning so in the you know right after the crash it was just it was terrible right it was all everything was bad um but a good thing that we found that came out of it right away was uh, Logan Boulay had signed his, or he hadn't signed, but he had made his wishes known that he wanted to be an organ donor. He was, they, they said he was brain dead at the hospital, but his organs were still viable. Um, and they were able to use his organs. Uh, he passed away the next day, but they used his organs to help six people. And, uh, I'm sure most people remember, but what it did was it created this Logan Boulay effect where organ donorship went crazy and people started signing their cards and it, like it just, it went crazy in a good way. So the, the organ donorship, the Logan Boulay effect, the green shirt day is one of the nicest things that's come out of our tragedy and we have to support it. Uh, because it's a good thing, uh, but we support it because it was Logan's, and uh, I think it's awesome. I've always had my donor card signed. I'm, you know, we're, I'm getting to the age where nobody wants my organ. They're old, but but I think it's a good thing. And it's today is a tough day for the Boulay family, uh, but they've somehow found a way to turn it into a beautiful thing. Yeah, isn't that? Uh... That's kind of the challenge, right? Of finding finding something, finding a silver lining or something beautiful and something that, you know, was so ugly in so many ways. And uh, obviously saving the lives of six others or helping the lives of six others, you know, with that is, uh, you know, is a, is a great legacy for for Logan. Do uh, my, 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 my father-in-law comes to mind because he's sitting there waiting for a kidney right now. He's at 8% function and it's just not, uh, COVID has put a lit, lot of wrinkle on a lot of transplants that aren't considered like, you know, life-threatening at the moment, and uh, geez, to find to find uh, donors, it's it's a hard thing. I mean, it's a big sacrifice. I get it on the donor end, but you know, there is uh, there is people that need them for sure. You know, and 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 it's awesome to see that Logan had that effect on everybody. What does um, you know, 
for me, and that's the thing, obviously I'm here on my, my channel with my platform and people who enjoy following me. So I share, you know, sometimes my thoughts and feelings about stuff and, um, you know, the crash and Humboldt was, and is, I mean, something that, um, you know, it, uh, it's just one of those things, you know, that, uh, that hits me and, and it hit me, it hit me even harder when I, when I knew it was you, you know, I knew it was you and your family. Um, I have a little process kind of that I do here and you know, there, like a, as you know, with the pub in Fort McMurray, there was something that we tried to do. Um, what, I mean, being so in it and being right next to it, like you're there every day, obviously, like, is there, a, is there a process or something that your family has done to commemorate this in a positive way where you found that silver lining to commemorate Jackson and what an amazing kid he was? Well, uh, we've learned a lot over the last three years and we've grown. Um, what I've realized is that I'm not the same person. So I'm not the old Chris. I'm a different Chris. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, which I, I try to tell people. Like, I'm definitely more sensitive now. But on the flip side, I've also got a little bit shorter fuse. Uh, so the emotions are a little bit higher. So, But I'm never going to be that guy again. My wife's never going to be that girl again. My kids are never going to be those same kids. So, you know, we're always changing. But that was definitely a defining moment in our lives. Um, and, you know, like, I never really cried much before. I cry freely now, uh, you know, and I'm not ashamed of it. I, you know, it's, it's therapeutic for me. Uh I still love to talk about Jackson. I'm here today. I want to talk about Jackson. I love talking about him and, you know, what a regular kid he was. Um, but it's been a journey. Uh, and I, I'm realizing more and more I'm still in it. I'll never be over it. I think we, anybody that's ever lost a child would would agree with that. We're never over it. Um the way I explain it to people is there's a hole. There's a hole in, in my soul. And all I've done is build up some muscle around that hole. So it just doesn't quite hurt as much. And so I build up some strength. I lean on people when I need to lean on people. Um, but there's still days when I'm driving to work and a sad song comes on and I, I just cry. And that's okay. You know, yeah. I'm getting pretty good at crying and I'm picking up 10 minutes here and getting back to it. Um, so it's been a journey and, um, we've noticed too, that, you know, there's four of us in the family now, there's myself, my wife, my son, and my daughter, and we're all on our journeys. And, uh, what we've all just tried to do is just appreciate that one day I might be sad. Andy might be having a good day. Um, Brett might be indifferent and Taylor might be frustrated and it's okay it's okay that uh, we're in different places. And so we just have to respect that we're in different places one day could all be switched the next day. Um, but we just keep loving each other and supporting each other and, and getting, getting through it and moving forward. Yeah. What a great, uh, metaphor that was, um, you know, to explain how you're feeling. And I could totally understand that too. Cause I, I'm sure a day when you're grieving, or you're sad and, and and at the start maybe if like you said if andy was maybe having an okay day like you could almost be judgmental about that you know and and then that would be divisive and that's the last thing you want and everyone grieves differently and everyone goes through stuff differently so to give uh, allow that i guess as being a learning lesson is probably something that's really helped 
I, uh, I watched your interview with, with CTV, which, uh, I think it was, I think it was three days after the crash maybe or something. And I remember at the time, which by the way, I don't know what you thought or if you've ever watched the coverage there, but like, I'm never impressed with the news at all. Almost zero of the time. I thought TSN did and CTV did really good jobs with that. And, uh, and your interview, man, like I, couldn't I couldn't I couldn't imagine you more authentic, more raw, more honest, and 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 seeing you talk about Jackson in such a I mean, proud father way, but like in a real way that was, you know, I don't know, I that just still moves me to this day, and I just wanted to say how proud I was of you for doing that, and I think I texted you and told you at the time. I mean, how hard that would have been, I can just imagine, but uh, there is still, I mean, there's definitely a big a big shining light in that interview about how proud you were of that of that boy that was becoming a man, and uh, maybe you know, tell us a little bit about Jackson and you know what type of player he was, what type of person he was. Well, and you know, like that interview, I I I do try to tell everybody that Jackson was a regular kid. He he was not perfect. He had his flaws. Um, but like all of our kids, you know, you appreciate their, their highlights, their lowlights, and they are who they are. And they're, and they're just trying to do their best to figure life out. And he was no different. Um, he was a classic middle child. Uh, you know, he was really flexible within the family. He could you know, Taylor would say, let's go to Dairy Queen. And he'd be like, okay, sure, let's go to Dairy Queen. And then mom would say, you know, I want to take the dogs for a walk. And he'd be like, okay, sure. And he was just that middle child that was flexible. He was a goofball. He liked, uh, if he was in trouble, you know, he would try to make you laugh. And, (laughs) and, uh, you know, there would be times when Andy would yell at him. Mom's yelling at him. And he would... He would just start doing this. So I'm like, mom, come on. Like I'm number one. Right. And, and <laughs> mom's mad. Right. Cute face. And he's number one. And then, then you can see mom start to crack and she starts to like, she, like she was putty in his hands and she's the same way with Brett and Taylor as well. But um, so he was a, a charmer and uh, just, I always like to say that he was one of those guys that you would go hang with that made you feel good about you. And he was a, you know, he'd build you up. Um, Loved his teammates, loved to just go hang out, play hockey. And, uh, you know, I think he was a regular kid. And I think, uh, you know, that's kind of what made him special. Yeah, that's awesome. How was he, um, what would his teammates say about him? How would they describe him? I think he liked to, and he wasn't really this way at home as much, but I think he liked to be the, the life of the party in the room. Uh, oh, sorry, my phone's ringing. Uh, I think he liked to be, uh, he liked to have the attention on him, um, which is, you know, weird, but, uh, yeah, he was, they, and, but he was that way in the room too. He would get along with everybody. Um, and they, but they had a pretty unique, uh, group. So they all got along pretty good. Is that, um, is that maybe a chip off the old block? I mean, that would be potentially how, how a lot of your teammates might describe you as well. Do you, do you see that you and him? There were some similarities for sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, I love being in the room too. And it's a, it's a happy place. It's supposed to be a safe place. And, uh, that's what made me happy. That's probably what made you happy. That's what, 
you know, made him happy. So, yeah, I guess, like it or not, he's part of me, and he probably had some of my good qualities. My bad. <laughs> oh, that's wild. Yeah, you weren't so much the life of the party guy as far as spotlight was concerned, but you were definitely, I mean, I, I know, you know, you would, you would talk to anyone, uh, like they were your best friend, you know, a German or Canadian or otherwise, whether you played with them before, whether he was 15 years younger than you or, you know, five years older. So I think you always gave everyone their, their space and um, there's value to that. And I've heard you describe, you know, Jackson as a glue guy before too. And that's kind of, you know, I, when you use those words, you know, I mean, I, I obviously only knew Jackson walking around in the dressing room as a young, as a young boy, you know, and, and watching him grow up a little bit. But I, I thought of you and I'm like, geez, that might be the way I would describe Chris. You know, like he was, you were, you were like that, you know, you were just a guy that was easy to be around. And I, and I think that not most people would leave the conversation smiling with you, you know, on the team yeah. and, and uh, would lift guys up. So, I mean, that's, that is cool that Jackson was able to, to take some of that from his old man and carry it with him on his journey. And I'm hoping, hopefully if I have a few good qualities that my boys are doing the same thing, we had a, we had a, a little bit of an issue, a little bit of issues today with brothers, as you might imagine, and being close in age. And, and there's been some sibling rivalry going on that dad kind of cracked a little bit today. And um, when I was then, then I kind of went to this interview and I'm like, what am I getting so pissed off about? You know, like just yeah. chill, you know, just relax, be grateful. This is a, uh, it's a good thing to have, to have these problems. So um yeah, I mean, I love hearing you talk about Jackson. Is there is there anything these young hockey players? I know. I mean, right now there's probably some parents listening, and, and I know there's some some players definitely listening to the podcast. Is there is there one thing that would have gotten Jackson to the level that he was at, and would have maybe allowed him to continue on? That would have been an intangible. That's maybe not how hard he shot, or maybe not what a great skater he was, but something that you know would have placed him on a team and made him a desirable uh, uh, you know teammate or player for somebody. The, the thing that I think about all the time is that the rink was his happy place. And he played midget double. He played bantam double. Like He wasn't a triple-A kid, but he just loved going to the rink. And basically, basically because he loved going to the rink, he loved being there, and it was his happy place, and he wasn't afraid to work hard. He just kept getting better you know, and good enough to play junior B and good enough to play junior A. And, uh, you know, he, he was just type of kid that just kept working. And I really believe it's because of the love of the game. So when I was coaching and you're coaching now, I mean, we all love that kid that comes to the rink with a big smile on his face. You know, nobody likes the kid that comes to the rink with an attitude. Nobody likes the kid that comes to the rink and doesn't put in an effort in practice, you know, like, but the kid that, you know, works hard, smiles, gets along with everybody. You, we all kind of want to nurture that kid and see what he can do because I, I truly believe that that's what kept him going. Um, and, you know, I like watching kids like that because they're easy to coach for one. Um, and they do generally make your team better, even if they, you know, they can't turn left as good as the other kid or they don't shoot the puck as, as hard, but, but they'll work hard. They're coachable. Uh, I think that's why Jackson just kept going. He just never a superstar, but he just kept working at it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what else happens is <laughs> they get better. Yeah. Those kids get better, you know, like, um, yeah, there's a kid that comes to mind. I won't name names, but the start of the year, and I was working with the top Adam team in Vernon. I was just, you know, 
obviously no judgment, but you see kids and you kind of place them, you know, in your head. And I was just like, he wasn't a natural talent. It didn't speak out to me, but he loved the game, studied the game, worked his tail off in practice. I'm talking one year at at an eight, nine-year-old level, right? But this kid like closed so many gaps, right? Like, and it's, so it's interesting because sometimes we fall in love with talent, right? But I'm really starting to fall in love with, with that those intangibles that you're talking about, right? Like those intangibles close a lot of gaps and open a lot of doors. And, uh, and if you show up with the rank with the right attitude, like you're saying, and you have that love of the game and, you know, be a good person, geez, you know, the, your coach, like you just said, he's one that goes to bat. He wants to go to bat for you. He wants you to succeed in a genuine, authentic way. Right. Um, and boy, I mean, you and I, in our pro careers, how many times did we have somebody that you really felt was in your corner? And when you did, you yeah. really knew it, right? You know, like that makes a big difference for for a player. So I could see that. I mean, there's a couple of kids that I'm working with right now that are, are getting that opportunity. And I love being able to pick up the phone and say, you know what? This kid's going to be a star in your locker room. I guarantee you that. Yeah, He's going to make your team better. He's going to make your organization better. He's going to make the community better. And he's going to help you on the ice too, by the way. But, you know, like those are the guys you want to build around. Um, you mentioned that team being special, meaning humble. Um did you have a feeling for that before this whole thing went down? Like, and, and, and what about it was special at that point? So, I mean, you and I played on lots of teams. Uh, Jackson had played on, you know, three or four junior teams. And when he got to Humboldt, he was there for about two weeks. And, of course, we were chatting every day. And he goes, Dad, this team's awesome. He goes, there's no clicks. Everybody gets along. And I remember him saying that it was just the, it was the closest team he'd ever been on. And I thought back to all of my experiences and I, and I've been on some really nice close teams. I've been on some average teams. I've been on some teams with some dysfunction. And I said to him, I go, well, enjoy it, Jax, because it's, it's kind of rare and it doesn't happen very often. So when it does, I go, it's pretty awesome. And that was my first inclination that the team was special. And then after all the tragedy, I met all the families and just like good people, you know, they were just like you and I, they just wanted the best for their kids. There was no egos. There was no uh, prima donnas. And I'm like, well, okay, so we got good families. That's why all the kids were good. Um, And, the biggest factor, which we haven't even touched on yet, was the coach, Darcy Hogan. He created a, an environment in the room that bred that togetherness and that cohesiveness. He was huge. And uh, he would seek out character over talent. I mean, it would be nice if he had both, obviously. But uh, he was that guy that put that team together. So... Were they special? Yeah. I mean, they're all, it's easy to say now that they're gone. Um, but I remember even, like, it was November 1st, 2017, Jackson said they're special. And I'm like, enjoy it. And, you know, like, I talked to the survivors still. I stay in touch with a few of them. And uh, they're still just as awesome today as they were to Jackson back then. They, they're, like, they're like our kids. So good quality people. That's really all and they were led by a good quality person um i think that speaks a lot to you know what you want on a team and i know myself when i'm coaching a team i want character i mean it's nice to have speed and skill and talent but uh you know 
it's so much easier to work with character players. Uh, one of those character players, at least, I mean, I haven't had an ch- opportunity to to speak with him yet personally, but it looks like I talked with his publicist and he's going to come on, on the podcast. And that's Caleb uh, Dahlgren who wrote that book crossroads and one of the survivors. And I've heard him on a couple interviews. And I mean, he, he, at this point, he sounds almost extraordinary, like, like how, you know, just how positive he is and how he was able to turn some things and find new perspective. Right. And, and be able to provide, you know, hope to a lot of people. And it's just like, he seems so inspiring. It almost seems superhuman. I, I, do you know Caleb at all? Have you had a chance to read the book and what that means to you? I, so I know Caleb a little, a little bit. Um, and we've gotten to know him a lot more since the crash, obviously. Uh, I have read the book. Um, and when you read the book and you read about Caleb, you're all like, there's nobody this good. There's nobody's this nice and giving. And you want to think it's an act, but it isn't. The guy is like, he's legit. Like he really truly cares about everybody else. And he's like, why? And he really is that, that way. Uh, His parents did a wonderful job with him. So, so we knew the book was coming out and and Caleb has been upfront and honest with us because we've actually had other people try to write books before. And it was, you know, there's some hurt feelings and stuff as to, you know, you don't know. But so Caleb was the first one of our group that decided to write a book. And he's like, I'm, I'm doing this. This is part of my journey. I'm only going to tell my story. And he was really open and honest with us, with us all. And I, I think I can speak unanimously for the whole group is that we, we wish him well. We're like, yeah, do it, Caleb. Like, this is yours. Nobody, um, nobody would say, you know, it's too soon. Don't write a book. Uh, we're rooting for him. Uh, Cause he's a good kid. So I read the book and I, I kind of broke it into three parts. The first part was about him growing up with his diabetes and stuff. And, you know, I found that interesting. Uh, the second part, he talked a lot about the crash and he doesn't have a lot of memory. So a lot of it was what people were telling him. I, I found that part quite difficult um, just cause there was, you know, a lot of real raw emotion there. And then there was a nice, really nice message at the end. So, Again, we, we wish Caleb the best. He's a solid kid. Um, he does seem too good to be true, but it, he is he's, he is who he is. That's, that's not a it's not an act. That's awesome. I'm glad you I'm glad you can provide that because I mean I uh, the way you said it is kind of how I was thinking because not having a chance to speak with him, right? I, like I said, I've heard him on two interviews and it almost sounded like holy smokes, like this guy this guy's almost too much. But like. Um, you know, that's, that's awesome that you're validating that this is coming from a true and authentic place and you endorsing it. And I think that's great because that was sort of why I didn't know what answer you're going to get. You know I mean, I, I, when I was going to ask you that, cause, uh, there obviously is a lot of emotion in what's going on. Um, and who knows what he wrote about. I mean, I haven't read the book yet. His publicist is going to send me one, so I'm going to read it. So I can't speak to it, but I, I obviously knew that he was going to talk about the crash and his relation to it and everything else. And, um, there can be some judgy things that maybe go on for some people. Right. So I, I didn't know how that worked, but I'm glad that he reached out to and was sensitive to that and, you know, and do, wanted everyone to agree. I do have to tell you something's funny about him. So it's not funny, but uh, we went to visit him in the hospital and for as nice as he is and polite as he is, when he had his brain injury, he actually lost that part of his, his <laughs> the, the sympathetic part, the polite part. And 
So we're going to go see him. And his dad, Mark, is outside of the hospital room. And he goes, just to forewarn you, he's a bit of an ornery bitch right now. And we're like, oh, okay. And we didn't even know Caleb at that time. He was just kind of cold. And we're like, he's, you know, he's like, how's Joey doing? And I, and he didn't know, right? And so I had to tell him he didn't make it. And he just kind of looks at me, just stone faced. He's like, oh, too bad. You know, and I'm like, I'm just shocked. And, but he started to get that part of his brain back with the, regular Caleb and since then he's just he's yeah he is he's over the top but it's weird when in the beginning he lost that part isn't that wild it's wow thought he was never going to get it back and then and apparently the stuff that he was saying to the the nurses you know swearing at the nurses and he would never do that and you know I can do it myself and he's swearing and he was just he was a different person right so it's nice to see him back uh, right right wow he really is the neurology behind that's kind of wild too like i never uh you know that your emotions and how you are in that way is like tied to something in your in your brain is 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 wild um that 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 organization continues on they try to move forward you know i mean covid's been so weird uh how how has hockey for you it's just, it's almost been different from that day, kind of. I mean, it was like that first year, I guess, was sort of a normal year. And then it was, you know, then we have COVID and this and that. Like what, how, what part of, what role does hockey play for for you guys now and your family? Well, we're, I think we're one of the lucky ones that we still have a, a love of the game. We still have a passion for the game. Uh, my youngest, Brett, is still playing junior. He's out there in Kelowna. Um, but I questioned that too. Um, there are some families that have a hard time watching hockey. Uh, I questioned it. I, I, and I said to my youngest, I said, Brett, you don't have to be a hockey player. It's okay if you don't want to play ever again. I'm totally cool with it. And he's like, no, Dad, I want to keep playing. And, and he went through a couple of years in midget, and he struggled uh, with losing his brother and everything. But we found, and this is just the Joseph family, hockey has helped for us and we're back and we love the game it doesn't change anything for us now i i know there are a couple families that are struggling with the game and they don't love it as much as they used to i know there's some survivors that are that don't love the game as much as they used to and and we say that's okay too um but i know for me we live here in edmonton i still get excited to watch the oilers um, I still get excited to step on the ice, do an alumni event. I still get excited to go watch my son play. We've been lucky that we've maintained our love of the game. And I think it's, it's actually helped. It's helped us a lot. Yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty wild that you go there like that. I mean, I, I, I can see that too, right? I mean, a game that's obviously given you so much for so long right like the life that your family knew and the places that you've been and then also that same game essentially you know took took away that that piece right so i could see how families can could have that disassociation with it um i gotta say too there there have been moments um you know um we're sort of lucky in that there's not a lot of guilt associated with our family we got we have a villain that we can blame for uh losing our son um but there were moments where I'm like, well, I'm a hockey player. I made my kids hockey players. Is, is it, should I have done that? Is it fair that I pushed them into hockey? And, and I, I 
I want to say that I introduced them to the game and they fell in love with it themselves. I never pushed. I was never that guy. Um, but you always wondered that, you know, like, is, is hockey still going to be the same? And we're, like I said, we're lucky. We still love the game. I'll ask you before I was going to get into your career, but I want to just touch briefly on you being a, a coach. And, uh, and I assume you coached either both your boys or, or one of them. Yeah. How, uh, how was that for you as far as like being able to coach and then yet also coach your son? So you have the dad hat and the, and the coach hat and how did that work for, for you guys? Well, coaching in general for me was awesome. I loved it. Um, I'm that type of guy that steps on the ice and I got a smile on my face and, uh, you know, I love that time with just the team, uh, without parents. <laughs> Funny, you know, like we love parents, but Oh God, they're a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, but uh, coaching your kids is a different dynamic as well. And uh, Jackson and I had to learn it together. Brett and I had to learn it together. We had to learn where our boundaries were as we went through. And we all had to mature. I had to mature as a coach. The kids had to mature as players and, and find that acceptance of, you know, he's being dad right now. He's being a coach right now. And it's so hard to not show like, He's your favorite. And then it's also so hard to not show that you're kind of sitting him on the bench just to show that he's not your favorite. And so it's a difficult uh, dynamic for the dad, the co, mm -hmm. but it's also a tough spot for the kid too. You know, like I, I, I do think that, you know, my son, both my sons would have looked back on the, on the times together and thought that was awesome father son time. Um, but it can also be a little bit difficult. So it's a, it's a, it's a dance. It's yeah. a dance. You and your son got to do together. You and your daughter got to do together and just kind of figure it out. And as long as you've got the best interests of the team in mind, you should be fine as a coach, you know, and that's really all that matters. Yeah. Did you ever swing? Like, did you, was your pendulum either on one side or the other being, um, if you were to be honest as you can, like, w was it more favoritism or more of the opposite, more like they, they got the harder treatment than anyone else? Uh, I would probably say they got a little bit harder. Like if someone had to serve a penalty, <laughs> probably if, uh, you know, end of the game, you know, I'm probably not putting my kid out there just because of the optics uh so i think they got it harder that way as a as a as a player yeah uh, but as far as you know talking to your kids on the drive home after the game i remember both jackson and brett they said to me dad why don't you why don't you tell me how it is like papa does you know my my dad and he just tells me played like crap and i'm like well you did this good you could work on i was always trying to they wanted me to be tougher. So I was never, right. I was never really the tough dad. <laughs> yeah. There was a couple of times, you know, I think most parents get frustrated with the effort. And if right. the effort's not there, you know, like son or daughter, you're doing yourself a disservice, you know, you're doing your team a disservice, wasting my time, wasting everybody's time. But yeah. yeah, overall, I think I tried to find out. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh... One of the one of my most heartbreaking moments was my first year coaching Hudson. So he uh, was my oldest, and so he wanted me to coach. And it was our he made the Adam C team by like the skin of his teeth. 
um, you know, his, his first year. And, and so I was coaching that team and we were whatever. I mean, we were just doing the best we could. And, and he mentioned the optics. So I was in that scenario where I was like, well, I'm not going to be that dad, right? Like I'm not going to give all my attention to my kid for sure. And I, at the time I wasn't aware, but I, we were coming home from practice and it was about two months into the season. And, and Hudson, Hudson says, dad, how come you don't coach me? Like you coach the other players. You, you never talk to me on the ice, you know? And I was like, Oh my God, like buddy, like, is that how you feel? Like, you know, and I'm like, that's, that's definitely not what I want you to think, you know? So like from that moment on, I realized that I had gone too far the one way, right? Like I was, I was expanding my energy and, and my focus on making sure everyone else felt like they were a part of it and included and being a coach for them. Yet I was completely ostracizing and not coaching my own kid, right? Like letting them kind of, uh, sw- uh, sink over there by himself. So anyways, there, there is that balance because you are worried about, you know, obviously the other kids. You're worried about, you know, the, the parents. You want to do the best job you can. You also want your kids to have a good environment and a good experience. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we, we, the only people are going to empathize with us are our fellow coaches because I don't think it's really, it's not, you don't like quite get it until you're behind the bench, you're well, blowing the whistle. I do remember there's times when, Let's say I wanted to say we want to enter the offensive zone. Why? Let's just keep it simple like that. We don't want to interrupt the middle. So you tell the whole team, you want to enter the zone wide. You want to enter the zone wide. So, you know, Robbie doesn't do it right. You pull him aside and say, Robbie, you know, we're supposed to be entering the zone wide. Get it to the wings and we'll enter the zone. Then you say it to another kid and they're like, okay, coach. And then you say it to your son. He's like, why are you always picking on me? (laughs) You're like, well, so there is, it is right like it's a little more emotional when it's thrown yeah yeah for sure for sure um i've always asked them too and that's the thing i do enjoy it like i really do enjoy it i love it um i think i'm good at it you know i mean like i can say that with some pride so i i enjoy that but it's definitely not about me and like every year i'm like you know do you guys want me to be a part of this you know like i I definitely don't have to don't don't say yes for me right like and and they do at this point so i mean i'll do it as long as they want and um you know at some point you're not going to be able to obviously so you know i'll take advantage of it while we can and see where see where it goes but they are they're all three are really passionate about it they really enjoy it right now and um and I was kind of even the other way, Joe, like my oldest Hudson, like he had to ask me multiple times to play hockey. And everyone's like so shocked when I say that. Cause I was like, I don't know. I just wanted to make sure that he wanted to do it. You know what I mean? And it wasn't, it wasn't me like putting him on skates and, you know, getting him in power skating. He's going to be this amazing hockey player. Like I wanted him to do it for him on his terms. Yeah. And I wanted him to make sure that he wanted to do it. And, uh, you know, and it's been in his blood. I mean, I think from day one, uh, cause we were trying to make him into a skier <laughs> and our, our family plans weren't in hockey rinks. And my wife was like, ah, maybe we'll try skiing. Anyways, it just didn't work. They, they all were counting the minutes on the chairlift until they could get to a hockey rink or to the pond or whatever. So anyways, we're a hockey family and we'll, we'll, we'll stick it out and see where it goes. But speaking of hockey, buddy, um, I don't think many people probably know that you were picked 10 picks higher than Joe Sackick (laughs) (laughs) in the 1987 draft, um, fifth overall that year. Um, like, I mean, obviously just a really impressive thing to have in your resume in the first place, uh, went on to play 500 NHL games. Um, and then some, uh, played with some really amazing players. Uh, what was minor hockey like for you? And when did you get that bug, like that passion? Um, well, I think I always had it. I was always, uh, I was like that. I like to be at the rink. I was happy. Um, 
I didn't think it was a thing. I didn't think I was going to make it anywhere. I, I, I grew up in Burnaby. And I remember looking at the Burnaby Blue Hawks junior B team. And I looked up to these guys. I said, Dad, I want to play for the Burnaby Blue Hawks. And my dad's a school teacher. And he's like, you know, you're going to have to work your butt off to get there. And so I, I just kept working at it. Like you, like Jackson, like as we were talking about earlier, just, I just I loved the rink. And so I just kept working at it. And I think it was Bantam. All of a sudden, the Seattle Thunderbirds noticed me. And I was at a tournament and in Kamloops. And they listed me. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. And they're like, well, they want, we want you to come to camp. And so I went to camp. I made the team. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Like, it was a whirlwind, right? And all I knew is I wanted to play hockey. And, uh, you know, you get in that. 16 year old year in the Western Hockey League, and you're just trying to get in there and you're trying to establish yourself and become a regular. And I did that by the end of the season. And it was just because, you know, you just keep working at it. And, you know, if a coach would give me shit, I would, in my own head, I'd be like, yeah, I got to be better. I got to be better. You know, I never once thought, oh, that coach doesn't know what he's talking about. And so I guess I had some internal drive, which is good. Um, and I just kept getting better. And yeah, actually, I grew up with Joe Sackick and uh, we went to the draft together. I got a really good picture of him and I at the draft. Um, the only reason I went higher than him because I was in my second year in the Western Hockey League and he was a rookie. He was in his first year. Um, but they obviously got it right. The Quebec Nordiques so drafted him because uh, he was pretty awesome. Like when I played him in Bantam and Midget, I was like, oh my God. Like I, I think I'm, I got to take credit and say, I made Joe a star. <laughs> there you he go. had to beat the likes of me all the time. But, uh, <laughs> just a, an awesome dude um, and uh, unreal player. Unreal player that, uh, you know, deserves all the accolades that he gets. Um, he was he was pretty awesome. But, He's yeah. like a heck of, heck of a hockey mind, too, now in his new role there in GM. But, uh, you know, know, back to you, though. Joe, Joe Sackick's got enough... I want to talk about Chris Joseph. Uh, you so you make that team out of camp, and you're like you're and you're surprised. Like you're genuinely like you're telling me you didn't you didn't know it was coming that there was a chance. So you you now you're in a new country at 16 years old, building for Seattle Thunderbirds, and now you're in it. You're a major junior player, and the Bernie Blue Hawks are way in the rear view mirror. Yeah, and that's I, crazy. I don't know. I I was I was very naive. I'm sure even as a 30 year old when I played with you in Germany, you probably thought he was naive for an old guy. But I, they they took me in Seattle and they were telling my dad he's going to be a first rounder. And my dad's like, yeah, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And they're like, I don't know. I just I'm like, just give me a rink. I just want to play. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they were true to their word in in that they they developed me and they worked with me. And uh, I didn't believe that that was going to be the case. But I did get into my 17-year-old year, and all of a sudden Central Scouting has got you on their radar. And, and then as the season went on, I climbed and climbed and climbed. And then I think I made, I made the World Juniors that year as well. Oh, I think okay. a lot. you know. So I was an underage playing World Juniors. That probably moved my stats up quite a bit. Um, but, they, yeah, so – 
I guess that's, that's crazy. So you, yeah, as a draft player, you, I mean, as a draft eligible player, you were, you were playing major junior, not many, well, you must've been one, if not of a couple, if not zero other people on that team. Of that on, status. Junior team. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was uh, me, Shanahan, uh, Pierre Turgeon, and maybe Luke Richardson. That's that wild. Put it. That's, yeah. that's cool. Did you guys win? That was the year of brawl. We got that was the year 1987 PS standing. We got in the brawl. Oh we, my gosh. How did I not know that? And if I knew that, how did I forget it? We got to cover that now. So you were a part of the when they shut the lights off in Russia? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I have to tell your audience to Google the 1987 brawl. I'm number five. I'm right on the ice. I'm front and center. I'm probably one of the first fights. I didn't start it though. Uh, but. Yeah, so I was in that. What happened? I mean, so, yeah, so for anyone who doesn't know what happened there, it was World Juniors. It was in Russia, playing Russia. You um, I mean, you can tell the nuances of it. All hell breaks loose, essentially. Every, it's a bench-clearing brawl at the World Junior Championships. The Russian authorities, whoever they are, don't know what to do, and I think as a means to stop it, they shut the lights off. So now it's a bench-clearing brawl in the dark. If you could imagine anything more scary than a bench-clearing brawl, it's doing it when you can't see what's happening. Um, like, as a player, how? Like, what was your memory of that? Like, what was that like on well, the ice? I got tons of memories. And, of course, I've told the story lots. But, of course, I'll tell it again. So we were actually in Czechoslovakia. Which, oh, okay. Uh, is now Slovakia. But at the time, it was Czechoslovakia. We were playing against the Russians. There was no medal round. So there was no gold medal game. It was just round robin. Everybody plays eight games or seven games, and best record wins. Um, we needed to win by five to get the gold. We needed to win by less than five or tie. We had silver. And if we lost, we got a bronze. Russians had nothing. They were, they were out of it. And uh, so they played spoiler, and they were chippy. And they weren't a very good team that year for some reason. They weren't getting fed. There was rumors. There were they were getting belittled and berated all the time. And so they were just a really unhappy bunch. And this was the final game of the tournament. And it just got chippy and it got worse and worse and worse. And we actually had some refs that couldn't keep up. And so they struggled. So they let they missed a lot. And you know, Theo Fleury was on our team. He was a little bit of an agitator too. So Long story short, halfway through the second, we're up 4-2. Would we have gotten five? I don't know. But we, we felt confident that we were getting there. Um, and it started off with a, one little fight over here. And then I got in the next fight right here. And it ended up what was a five-on-five. Five. And, you know, back in 1987 in the Western Hockey League, a five-on-five five was not good, but it wasn't out of the norm. Yeah. And uh, we look up. And I look up, I'm fighting my guy. I look up and both benches are coming. I'm like, uh-oh. So, yeah, from there on, like I let my guy go. I went around to where the goalies were. I went to the corner and helped another guy. And we're all, you know, we're, everybody's fighting. And uh, then they turned the lights out because they didn't know what else to do. And it got even crazier. Um you know, when the lights go out and you get to that stage where you can start to make out light and dark, you know, we were wearing white, they were wearing red. So you could kind of tell who was who and guys were just going around suckering each other. And it was, it was bad. So we ended up breaking ourselves up and we stopped ourselves. They turned the lights back on. 
um, we go in the dressing room. We're hooting and hollering like it's a game. We're going to get lots of penalties, and we're going to go back out. We're going to win this gold medal. Our manager comes in the room and says we've been disqualified, and we've been kicked out of the country. And so now we got guys that are crying. We got guys that are swearing. We got guys that are just silent. We kind of came to the realization that this is this is real. Uh, we packed up our bags and we were leaving the dressing room. And as we left the dressing room, there was lying down the hallway all the way out to our bus, Czechoslovakian military. And each guy had a machine gun over his shoulder and a German shepherd. And we had to walk right down the middle, straight to the bus. The Russians had the same thing. We, um, we got on the bus and we left the country. I think we went to Zurich. We slept in the airport for like 12 hours, caught a flight home, and that was the end of it. Uh, we came home disgraced. Uh, but I have to tell this part. This is my favorite part. Um, about a month later, we got invited to go to Toronto all of the national junior team. Harold Ballard, who owned the Leafs, he hated the Russians. So he invites us to Maple Leaf Gardens. We go, uh, he introduces us to the crowd before the game. And we walk across the blue line one by one. We get a standing ovation in Maple Leaf Gardens. And then Harold Ballard comes out and hands us all gold medals that he made himself. Yeah, and it says the Maple Leaf forever. So it's a pretty cool gold medal. And... uh, You know, a lot of us, uh, a lot of Canadian hockey players that played World Juniors have won gold medals. I got to go back the next year, and we actually won the gold medal the next year in 88 in Moscow. So I have two. I have a gold medal, and I have the Harold Ballard one. And the Harold Ballard one is by far my favorite. It's, It's much nicer. That is what a what a wild story. So you say you come home disgraced. Like, I mean, I I would I would say at this point in hockey history, as as far as being Canadian, like that team almost is revered in some in some aspects that it was that it did that. Like, was that that wasn't the initial Init- flavor when you got back? Initially, there was a lot of mixed emotions, and and there was a famous argument on the air between Don Cherry and Brian Williams. Brian Williams kept saying it was a black mark for Canadian hockey and Don Cherry being Don Cherry said these boys are sticking up for each other and it's a good thing and so coming back there was a lot of mixed emotions um I actually got lucky because I went back to Seattle in the United States and and I didn't have to deal with it but I remember guys in Swift Current and guys in Hamilton saying it's it's brutal like it's like coming back from Vietnam like the country's mixed and uh, so they had to answer tough questions. And, you know, a lot of guys are 17, 18, 19 years old, and they don't know how to do interviews. And they'll sometimes have reporters that will take advantage of them. And uh, so they said it was a little bit challenging. And I think it took everybody, including the country, some time to sort of appreciate that moment a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But I do, i got to say, the next year we went back in 88, we were under some pretty firm orders there is no fighting at all because we were on some serious probation. They actually said, Russia, Canada, you guys are suspended for two years. And then somebody in the IHF said, hey, wait, the tournament's in Moscow next year. And then they came back, okay, you're suspended for 11 and a half months. (laughs) (laughs) How was that game against Russia the next year? Oh, intense. Um, we won 3-2. This was in Moscow. 
and they had McGilney and Burray and Fedorov, and Whoa. we won three two. But I think they outshot us two to one. Jimmy Waite was our goalie, and he saved saved the game. Uh, but we got one more goal than them. We and then because the Canada Russia game had always been like the grand finale, and our placing the year before was last. Yeah, actually played each other pretty early. So we only had like Poland and West Germany left, and we knew we were going to win by double digits. So yeah. that was like it was anticlimactic, but we knew we won the gold medal when we beat the Russians. Right, that's cool. Wow, can't believe you're part of that uh, that history. That's wild. Which team would you say is tighter if you could, if if there is such a thing um, between those two groups? Um, I well, I think just the brawl team. I mean, we actually haven't really had we've. Hockey Canada has never put a reunion together for that team. We did have a reunion for the 88 team that won the gold medal, but it's almost like Hockey Canada is a little bit ashamed still of that team. And maybe someday they'll celebrate that team, but there's never, never been anything official. Right. Hockey Canada and the IHF, that team really didn't exist, but there's that unspoken bond that we all have. Right. Yeah. Well, what was the draft like? So, I mean, you go into the draft fifth overall, um, I mean, that's, that's incredibly high. So you probably interviewed with everybody um, or maybe you didn't like, what was, what was naive Chris Joseph like at that point? Like uh, got your suit on, you're sitting there. You mean you're a pretty, pretty big player in the hockey world at that point. How, how was that experience? Again, I was naive, um, innocent probably at that time. I did do a bunch of interviews. I remember I interviewed with Chicago and Daryl Sutter was there and Daryl Sutter was probably just retired and he was a, player personnel guy and he was a young guy and uh, I interviewed and I just had like my pits were sweating crazy and I think it was leaking through my uh, my suit Daryl you know I did all my interviews and they ask you so a whole bunch of weird questions you know like what's your family like you know do you have a dog uh, what do you like to eat that kind of like just random stuff but Daryl took me aside after and he just kind of gave me a pat on the shoulder just relax you'll be fine you'll be a good day tomorrow um, so I did a bunch of interviews and I ended up going where I was rated, uh, fifth to Pittsburgh and, uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome. So you go down to the table, you meet everybody. And I was so excited that it was such a big deal. I actually stayed in the building, Joe Lewis arena. I stayed for all 12 rounds because I wanted to watch it all. The whole thing took place there and I stayed for hours and main reason was I had a teammate that was getting drafted in the supplemental draft after Sean, mm-hmm. who, Sean who Sean Chambers. He played oh, okay. New Jersey, Tampa, and uh, he was my teammate in Seattle. And so I waited around with him, and then he got drafted in the first round of the supplemental draft back. Right. The, um, but yeah, it was a it was a pretty cool time. Um. So you go to Pittsburgh and to my idol growing up, uh, Mario Lemieux, and uh, and you go there out of what looks like, I mean, from Hockey DB, you played some games with the. Uh, well, actually, no, you you you. It looks like you made the team out of camp. Um, made Pittsburgh out of camp, and that was a year Mario scored seventy goals. Like, what was what was that like? Stepping into that locker room, you must have been nineteen. Mario Lemieux's there, and you're an NHLer, and you I mean paint that picture. Well, as eighteen year old again, like the 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 sixteen to eighteen years were just like a blur. Like it just moves so fast, and uh, so I made the team, and I'm like, okay, this is good. I'm going to learn. I'm going to make mistakes. Uh, 
And we and the Penguins weren't a very good team at the time, but they were starting to get better and they had to build around Mario. So I ended up playing 20, 22 games and then I got traded. I got traded to the Oilers in the Paul Coffey trade. Um, I Again, whirlwind. You don't even know what's happening. Um, so I only played 22 games there with Mario. I was lucky enough that I, I went back to Pittsburgh later in my career and I got to play with them again. Um, but, uh, but Pittsburgh was pretty awesome. That's, you know, it's definitely still one of my favorite teams I ever played on. But is there any, like, as far as even making that team, like, do you remember any like seminal moments in that, in that training camp or in the exhibition games or, you I mean, you were a fifth overall draft pick. So sometimes like you're written in the lineup maybe before you even show up. I mean, how did that feel for you? Do you think that you like that you kind of had your path to that team or were there things that you had to do to make that team? I think uh, because they were still uh, growing as a franchise and I was a high pick. I think they had earmarked me to make the team. And I think I was probably going to make it anyways. Uh, and they were hoping that some of the older veteran defensemen would, would bring me along. Um, and so I think that's kind of what happened. And I was making mistakes and I was playing and it was, it was going okay. You know, it was for, but then I think they got an offer for Paul coffee and it was one of the, you, know, you just can't pass it up. And, and myself and Craig Simpson uh, came to Edmonton in that trade. Right. It's a big deal. Yeah. So, you know, as much as they, uh, you know, probably wanted to keep me and, and nurture me a little, they, they just got offered Paul Coffee. So, I mean, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. How, I mean, I've spoken on this show and, 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 I mean, lots about what a, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but it was a massive turning point which could have been really positive or negative for me, but was the trade to Toronto. And I was 20 or I had just turned 21. So it was my first year pro. So I had three years on you and I felt like I, that was, I was too young to handle that moment at that time. You know, I went from yeah. the AHL to the NHL to, uh, you know, to, to Greensboro, which there was 15 people in the stands to, you know, Maple Leaf Gardens, yeah. um, trying to figure it out there and all the nuances of that. Like how, how did that impact you as a, as a player and as a person, a trade, a trade of that magnitude at, you know, 18 years old. It was tough. Um, and I, I don't know if it's a whole lot different as for any, uh, a forward or a defenseman, but I went from a team that was uh, trying to work with me to develop me. And I went to the Stanley Cup champions and their blue line was solid. Their forwards were solid. And I, I couldn't get in the lineup and it was a, it was a tough spot. Uh, mentally it was a tough spot probably for my growth i probably was stunted in my growth a little bit as a player um and i think it it hurt me i also it was weird because i went to edmonton and i kind of had this mindset that they were the stanley cup champions and for the first year or two i kind of looked at these guys like them and me and not us and i and i didn't have that mentality like i'm one of them and I'm like, I'm playing with Glenn Anderson and Paul Koff or and uh, Mark Messier and Wayne Gretzky. And, and I was like a fan, you know, and it was, I shouldn't have had that mindset. I should have had the mindset, like I'm going to step in and I'm going to prove to them that I can do it. Um, I probably should have had a little more grooming in the minors, you know, yeah. but it's 2020. 
So that's why, you know, like when you do see players get rushed into the NHL, you worry for them. Uh, and I've, I've seen that here, especially in Edmonton. Uh, you know, you, you hope that they're able to develop and nurture growth in some of the young players because it's so easy to get enamored that this player is going to step in and make an impact. Well, not, not many do. Usually it takes a little bit of grooming. A special few for sure do. Yeah, yeah. Looking back on that on that version of you at 18 and now, you know, with the years and, and the reflection, what what could you have done or what would have helped Chris Joseph in that moment like to have to develop that mindset you're talking about? Because I can relate to that, too. Like I was I was trying to fit in more in the locker room than I was even like really understanding how to do it, like be an NHL on the ice, you know, Um because there's there's that there's that aspect of it too, right? And there's the social aspect of like being in a locker room with those guys. There's also, can I play with these guys? Um, how would you how would you have supported yourself now? <sighs> I would probably just take you know, pat myself on the back and say, "Come on, kid, you can keep up with these guys." You know, this is this you can do this. But I think in my mind, as an 18 year old, I, I tried telling myself that, but I didn't believe it, and I felt like. You know, these guys were the Stanley Cup champions and they were the best team in the world. And, um, you know, it's going to take you a while to get there. But, you know, you got to believe in yourself. You have to – hockey, when you get to the pro level, as we all know, is, is so mental. And uh, I think I would have said, you know, come on, show a little swagger. Show a little, you know, cockiness and you can do this and then work your butt off and get to it. Right. Yeah, so much easier said than done, right? Like building, building that, uh, you know, that inner fortitude or whatever that is. I mean, one of the things that I wish I would have done is, is think more. Because I mean, like I said, I was up in the, in Florida for for a little bit that year, twenty games, and I'd been up and down a couple of times, and I got traded at the trade deadline to Toronto. But I had never ever like really thought about being an NHL or like placing myself there. Like, like what I mean, as far as from a visualization standpoint, like living that, like, what do I need to be in that area? You know, like I was, I was definitely more in the moment, right? Like the moment of the here and now, which is, there's a benefit to that for sure, because you want to, you want to overachieve where you are, right? To get to somewhere else. I mean, that's one of the things guys are in such a rush all the time. They want to get somewhere else, right? I don't like where I am. I want to get somewhere else. I'm in the wrong spot, but you got to kick ass where you're at. Like, let's focus on that. So, I mean, I, I didn't mind my mentality with that, but there's a time and a place to focus on the here and now and also on where you want to get to. And I think that I had done really no, there was no processing for me with that. And especially with Toronto, and maybe you can relate to that. Like you, I kind of had like, and that was my naivety. I thought I was going to retire as a Florida Panther in 15 years and my NHL career to be awesome. And, you know, like I had my, my whole world was the Florida Panthers. And now it's like the Toronto Maple Leafs, like where I know nobody and I don't know the coach and I don't know any of these guys. And it's like, I, I had never even entertained a possibility like that. And I think that threw me for a big loop for a while. Yeah. It's that. Uh... You learn quickly, I guess, as a young man in the hockey world that uh, you gotta you gotta adapt, change. You know, you might be yeah. here, a plugger over here, and yeah, you just gotta sort of roll with it. But I mean, it's hard to tell a young kid that because it's a great word though, adaptability. You know, yeah. you might only mentioned it with Jackson too, right? Being being able to be flexible, like. You know, well, even you know who I had on was was Corpse. I mean, here you are, fifth overall pick, end up playing five hundred games. I mean, that's an NHL career. I mean, that's something to be super proud of. Uh, 
yet you maybe maybe you don't feel like you maybe left some things on the table right you said that maybe you know that trade that trade maybe didn't help you enough you had to fight through some adversity there i had Rene corbet on the other day he scored 79 goals in yeah. junior the one year he won the best qmjhl player of the year right and whatever else he won and he had to adapt into a third line grinder energy guy to to make the career that he did in the nhl and i mean that's wild when you actually really think about that right i mean he was the greatest goal scorer in the major junior level and you know, i mean he couldn't be a goal scorer in the nhl you know like it's 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 a tough it's a tough racket right it is tough yeah and it's opportunity and you got to take advantage of that spot that you're in and some days you're i mean for defensemen some days you're number one some days you're number seven or eight you know and so you just gotta roll with it and do the best you can yeah did you have any secrets as far as doing that? Like, uh, you know, being able to roll with it, being adaptable, allowing yourself to fill different roles? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is realizing that you you have to play different roles. Um, players that come in are like, well, I'm just a shooter. You know, and they're, well, we need you to back check, right? And if you don't realize that, your career is short. The minute you do realize that you can do that, then you become versatile. And you can fill in certain roles. And then, you know, maybe you're a fourth line guy and somebody goes down on the top line, but you have proven in the past that you can play top line minutes occasionally. You get an opportunity. So you you jump up and you take advantage of it. Um, but you do have to play that all-around game. And, you know, we try to coach the young kids that, and they don't see it, but, you know, you do have to play that 200-foot game. And uh, that's what's going to benefit the kids to get to the next level um, because there's only so many, well, there's only one Alex Ovechkin that just shoots the puck. Everybody else works their butt off in all areas of the rank. Right. So yeah, you got to build that whole game. You got to build the versatility to play, you know, three minutes a game or 30 minutes a game. Um, you just got to work, keep honing your skill, work at your game. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about when a coach would tell you something, you wouldn't think he's an idiot. And I read an article um, that you did. It was actually really well done about the coaching aspect and how when your kid gets cut, you know, it was, it was almost the, the same type of message to the parent. They, I mean, that it, like your first, your first knee jerk reaction isn't that the, you know, it's rigged and it's politics and, you know, like, which is what a lot of people do. Is there any message to that? Like as far as having some humility when it comes to, to whether it is being cut, being coached, you know, some advice, uh, any messages out there to parents or players? Well, I think that the, the big thing for me is that, I mean, we all know, you know, who the best players are on the ice in novice and in pro. Um, but when it comes down to the fourth line grinders or the sixth, seventh defenseman, you can flip a coin, most, most teams. Um, so it comes down to, it could come down to coach's choice. Maybe they just need a right-hand shot and not a left-hand shot. And so you lose the spot because of that. Um, so try not to take it personally. Try to take the coach's words of advice and and keep working at your game. And then someday maybe you're not that guy that is interchangeable. Maybe you keep working at your game and you're the guy that the coach has to have. And uh, I think when I hate to see players walk away and say, yeah, coach is out of his mind. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about because that doesn't really help the kids. That doesn't make them better. That gives them an excuse. Um, yeah. might even be right, but yeah. it still doesn't make them better. Sometimes, sometimes uh, getting cut is 
a blessing in disguise and it's so hard to see at that time. Um, but it does make you dig a little deeper and work a little harder. Yeah. Well, and you, you hit the nail on the head. I think when you're talking about those, you know, the, the, the gray area, you know, let's call it, you know, like anyone in the world can go watch Connor McDavid. You've never seen hockey before in your life. And you can tell me that Connor McDavid is a good hockey player, right? I mean, those guys just stand out when you get down to that gray area. Those intangibles we talked about earlier, that's where that makes a massive difference too, right? Having a smile on your face, being a good teammate, how hard do they work? You know, like all that kind of stuff is like, it's easy to pull for that guy. And a lot of times those guys get spots and it even comes down to the NHL scenario of longevity, right? I mean, if you're a guy that's easy to be around, people know what you're about, know what you represent, you make people better, you're a good example. Like, why not keep that guy? I know who that is. I know who that player is. There might be somebody who's marginally better on the one-timer or, you know, maybe a little bit quicker, but I, I know what I get in the pot on as, as the person, and I think that's something that for young players, it's a really great lesson to, to learn early. There was one team I was working with this year, Joe, that the, the, one, the one kid got cut from two teams yeah. and was pointing fingers. And, and like big time self-admittedly now. Right. And then says like, he realized that it was, he was a better hockey player than the coaches were getting credit for, but it was, it was his attitude. It was his mental makeup and how he showed up at the rink. And once he understood that it was like, wow, now he became a real big asset for this third team that he ended up going to, you know, where it was kind of the end of the road. And uh, I hope he continues on with that. And he, you know, he, he realizes that and, and he goes places, but it's, it's wild how often that holds players back too, right. Without even knowing. Um, I, I, I promised you an hour, we're already an hour and seven. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to cut you. We probably got to get going, but yeah, I don't want to cut you short. Cause I, we didn't even get into Mannheim. Um, cause I know we could talk about that, but maybe that would be less interesting for the listeners and more entertaining for us. So maybe we'll save that for a, for a beer one day, but, um, having played with Gretzky and having played with, um, with Mario. Yeah. You mean, in my mind, the two legends of our era that I, I never got to see Bobby Orr. I mean, they're, they're, they're the two greatest players that I had the pleasure of witnessing. You had the chance to play with them. Uh, let's give us give us your best Wayne story and your best Mario story to, to close out. Well, okay. So my first uh, my first day with the Oilers, uh, I've just got on the team, and uh, we're playing New Jersey Devils, and I'm on the power play with Mo Mantha and Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Yari Curry. Love it. We come in the dressing room anyways after the first period. We're down by a goal. And Glenn Sather walks in, and he starts giving everybody shit. And he goes in, Wayne Gretzky, who do you think you are moving guys around on the faceoff? There's only one prima donna on this team, and it's me. And he's pointing at himself, right? And I'm sitting in the corner going, I can't believe he's giving Wayne Gretzky shit. <laughs> and, uh, Wayne just took it. And... Uh, and I soon learned after that that was Slats's way to new guys who the real boss is. That wasn't for Wayne. That wasn't for anybody else. They all knew the drill. That was for the four new guys that just came into coffee trade. Well, I got that pretty quick. Um, right. Wayne. But the one thing I, I found with Wayne is um, such a hard worker. He worked so hard. I thought he was just going to ride on his skill and talent. He worked hard. Uh, Mario was the same way. Worked hard. They were did he? professionals. Yep. Yeah. Because he kind of got the he got got the other rap, you know, like that he yeah. just you know six four two twenty and was so amazing skill wise, and he kind of didn't look like he was working hard out there. But did he? Well, he practiced hard. He did. Yeah, he was probably more naturally gifted than Wayne was. I always tell people this because they always say, "Can you compare the two? 
I say, if they played one-on-one against each other, I think Mario would win every time. But if you put five Marios out there against five Waynes, the Waynes would win every time. He used other people better. And he had a vision that was just off the charts. And, uh, you know, I also say Wayne would still be amazing in today's game. And I really believe that because he wasn't the biggest, strongest, fastest, even back in the 80s and 90s. But he was the best. And today he wouldn't be the biggest or strongest, fastest, but he had the vision, never put himself in danger. Just they were both spectacular. They actually belong. If here's the NHL, they belong in a different league. Those two, maybe Bobby Orr, Gordie Howe, whatever, but like Connor McDavid, but the rest of us, that's the NHL league. These guys are in whatever. The <laughs> league, right? right. Yeah. Oh, pretty cool. How are they in the locker room as far as those two? Like, do they, with their personalities, I, I assume Mario was quiet and maybe, maybe Wayne wasn't, but I don't know. You tell me. Wayne was actually kind of quiet. We had Mark Messier in the team at the time, so he was a vocal guy. Uh, but they would both had an amazing sense of timing. They would both just put the teams on their own back and just do it themselves if they had to. Um, but their messages were good. They were all about team. They were never selfish. They were, they were true professionals. Yeah. That's and when awesome. they speak, you, you listened. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. No kidding. Hey? Well, that's the end of the line on here on green shirt day. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, an anniversary. I don't even know if there's a better word for it. I mean, but it is uh, the traditional word of the anniversary of of uh, of that crash three years ago. And um, you know, you're close close to my heart as I, as I let you know from time to time. And uh, you know, big hugs uh, from from Zoom here. And and I know we'll have a beer again one day, especially with the, with Brett playing down the road. We'll uh, we'll have a chance to get together. And I really appreciate you sharing. You know, your story, where you're at. You know, talking about Jackson and that team and. Uh, and even your career and sharing that with us today. I really appreciate everything, Joe. Well, thanks, Potsy. It was it was a blast. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I look forward to having that beer with you. Awesome. Thank you for listening today to episode 59 with Chris Joseph and myself. And I hope you take some gratitude from the conversation, and not just gratitude because you were listening to the conversation. I didn't mean it like that, but I just mean gratitude into your life. I know that we can get caught up in the day-to-day and the running around and, you know, some some of the frustrations that, that come on us and we think about what we don't have instead of what we do have. And when it comes down to it at the end of the day, if you have the, le- the your loved ones close to you and you get to go to bed and they're there and you get to wake up and they're still there, that's a good day. Um... And for some families, like those in the Humboldt Bronco tragedy, that it wasn't a good day. And because it wasn't a good day, um, things will never be the same. So gratitude goes a long way. I think it helps us through. I think it helps us through as people. And I know it helps us as athletes to deal with adversity and to deal with, with things that may not be going our way. So one, please take gratitude with you. Keep it a part of you. Be grateful for what you have and the people that are around you and the loved ones that you have. Your health, all these, all these things that sometimes we get, we, we, we take for granted at times. And also a huge thank you to Chris for being willing to share, um, for wanting to discuss Jackson. And I'm so thankful that I was in a position that I was able to celebrate Jackson and 
his life and you know his career as a player and as a teammate and what he was like as a teenager and all those things because uh, you know it is therapy every time you get to talk um, about him Jackson lives on and that uh, team will live on I know in my heart and the hearts of many um, because it was such a such a catastrophic event and, and, a, and a tragedy that really brought um, a, a sport community together and obviously it even transcended the the lines of hockey and, and of Canadian hockey for that matter uh, because when something of that magnitude occurs to you know a, a group of individuals of such innocence and with the youth and you know everything else the, the joys and the dreams and the goals uh, that were on that bus it obviously shakes us all to our core so uh, it's good to remember and it's good to be thankful and it's good to be grateful for our, for our own loved ones and for our own situation so uh, Chris, once again, you are a star, you're a gentleman, you're an amazing father, and you were, uh, it was an honor to play with you, and, and you know, thanks for joining us today. And everyone else, play hard, keep your head up.